Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In North Carolina, voting rights continue to be a prime topic of conversation, concern, and consideration. Just last month, the North Carolina Supreme Court conducted two unprecedented hearings, which will likely result in setbacks in the struggle to protect voting rights. In Harper v. Hall, the court is reconsidering a 2022 decision, which determined that North Carolina's imposition of a photo voter ID requirement was unconstitutional because it discriminated against African Americans. In another 2022 decision, Holmes versus Moore, the previous Supreme Court determined that the 2021 Congressional Redistricting Map, which the General Assembly had enacted, was illegal because it constituted partisan gerrymandering, which violated the North Carolina Constitution. That enacted map created congressional districts which would have elected 11 Republicans and three Democrats. But a court-ordered redraw of uh, the map created a 7-7 split for the North Carolina delegation. Last month, the newly constituted Supreme Court, which is now composed of a 5-2 Republican majority, conducted new hearings into these two prior decisions with the intent of overturning them and erasing the legal precedents that they established. This is the first time in North Carolina history that a Supreme Court has sought to overrule a legal precedent which was previously adopted by that court. The history of these two decisions and their expected impacts on voting rights in North Carolina are the topics of our discussions this evening. Joining us to discuss these issues and concerns are experts on this topic. And we are joined by Marcus Bass, who is the director of the North Carolina Black Alliance, who is sharing his expertise and knowledge with us uh, this evening. So uh, Marcus, thank you very much for joining with us this evening. Thank you both for having me, Attorney Jordan and Attorney Dawson. Glad to be back on the Legal Eagle Review for such an important topic in this moment in North Carolina. All right. Well, starting us out, because you know I, I, our listeners may not recall, uh, since it's been uh, a little while since you've been on uh, this uh, program, but can you kind of talk about the uh, the North Carolina Black Alliance and what it is that uh, that you do there and the kind of activities? Uh, that the uh, Alliance is involved in right now. Absolutely. Um, Attorney Joyner, if uh, we could take ourselves back to how a bill becomes law, the schoolhouse rock version, we'll know in North Carolina that that story doesn't add up. Uh, in some cases, 
there has to be some type of agency, it's particularly for Black voters, uh, because the democracy that we participate in is not a free, open, fair democracy as it should be. In some cases, historically, uh, communities have been marginalized, particularly the Black community. Uh, we've seen a number of gains in the past 10 to 15 years, particularly since the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Those have not come by virtue of um, equality and democracy. They've come because uh, Black voters, Black residents have had to step outside um, the party infrastructure and create movements that help strengthen democracy. Some of those movements have looked like the NAACP uh, litigation, the history of uh, equality or equal access to voting through uh, the introduction of the Voting Rights Act. And then in some cases, we just have to knock on our own doors, talk to our own people and speak to our own issues. And the Black Alliance in Advanced Carolina, we work to do that. Uh, we understand that left to our own devices, this two-party system will never quite meet the need of residents, particularly rural Black residents in North Carolina where um, political representation doesn't match the population. You have a number of communities of color in Eastern North Carolina with a sizable Black population, but a desperate um, representation in elected office. And in those cases, we want to make sure that we're improving the process. Um, when we look at gerrymandering and the maps, and when we look at what the North Carolina State Supreme Court is doing, I think we have to be able to pinpoint beyond partisanship the impact of these decisions and what happens to Black communities. It's not by case of apathy alone that uh, North Carolinians, um, communities of color, have been uh, left in situations of disparity. It's because the system has been set up to make sure that only a certain number of people can participate to the benefit of a largely white male uh, class of individuals in North Carolina. And so we work uh, to make sure that we're elevating that information, what's happening in the General Assembly. And when it's time to mobilize and move voters, not only are we providing the registration and education, we're also protecting them at the polls and helping elevate uh, these harms. Some of these interactions at the polls that seem almost Southern Gothic are real evidences of you know policy or litigation that we can help organizations uh, like the NAACP, Southern Coalition for Social Justice, uh, Forward Justice, we can help these organizations by identifying individuals that have been harmed in the process or volunteers that can help us find and improve democracy at the local level, state level, and national. So uh, that's just a, a elevator spiel of what the Black Alliance and Advanced Carolina has done. And I think in, in this case, um, your context that you set around what's happening in the courts, I just think we have to bookmark that with the fact that this is not just a rolling of the dice, change of heart. Uh, the legislature, the executive branch, and the judicial branch are all supposed to be independent branches. This system of checks and balances is constitutionally guaranteed. It has only been in the past 10 to 15 years that we've seen shifts to turn these independent bodies into more partisan controlled bodies. And I'm speaking more so to the judiciary. North Carolina had a history, a long history of an independent judiciary. Individuals ran not on party affiliation, but based on their experience and based on the services they could provide in community. Uh, a few years back, and you all know the context to how these repeals happened, when the General Assembly in North Carolina switched from Democrat control to Republican control, one of the first things that some of the individuals that were newly in control did was they began to take away the veil of independence and put more partisan control. And even having individuals on uh, a local level in the courts and on a state level run from a party affiliation. That is a poison pill that we see the benefits 
of that group uh, and the harms of that act on our communities, not just democratic communities, in particular communities of color. So that goose was cooked 10 years before we get to the effect of uh, seeing the recall of some of the decisions that they made just last year. So uh, that's my upfront, Attorney Joyner. I, I hope that was that was succinct enough to get us to the next set of questions. Well, you know, it, it, it prompts uh, several uh, other questions, one of which is uh, the, uh, the, the, the decline of political participation by our folks down east uh, and what has occurred over the years, particularly since the election of uh, Barack Obama, uh, to uh, result in a disinclination on the parts of uh, some of our folks to want to participate in the voting franchise. And then contrasting that with efforts designed to uh, deter uh, them from being uh, engaged in the uh, uh, political process. And you have been working in that area uh, for, uh, for a number of years and you have contact with the people. How, how, do, you, how do you explain exactly where it is that we are at uh, now with respect to this, uh, the need for and uh, efforts to uh, engage in uh, political participation. The um, paradox of Eastern North Carolina is very interesting to the history of North Carolina. I think we look at these rural places as kind of um, the last bastions of, of kind of this Southern way of living in North Carolina. And in reality, there is a group of people that want to maintain that status quo reality. At one point in time, North Carolina was a, a largely uneducated state uh, across the board from the mountains to the coast. Uh, there was not black or white, a huge level of education. And so the political experience is relegated only to white landowning individuals that didn't get their land because they were smart enough. They got it through you know, ill means, more so chattel slavery and taking of land from indigenous peoples. Uh, when the North Carolina uh, state began to organize itself and really create a system of government beyond just um, protecting uh, property for slave owners, they began to think about two things. Number one, in order to have a very informed electorate, you have to educate them. And North Carolina invested particularly in the East in educating uh, its citizenry. The Black community at the same time in the aftermath for coming into the grips of civil war were opening black institutions. Even before the Civil War, Eastern North Carolina had a large number of black independent high schools, preparatory schools that prepared a larger demographic of residents there, not just to engage in education, but to engage economically and to engage politically. Uh, from some of those institutions, the Laurenburg Institute in Scotland County that's still in existence today, or Charlotte Hawkins Brown at one time in Sedalia, um, or even as far up as looking at some of the institutions like Fayetteville State University or Elizabeth City State, they started out as preparatory academies well before uh, they became public institutions. And so think about that wealth of knowledge in a region and think about what that did to an electorate, not just where you educate and elevating um, the black electorate, the white electorate, you were educating and elevating black constituents at the same time. That fusion scared wealthy white landowning individuals. And they created uh, a system through Jim Crow laws that not just beat us back politically, but it also undermined the investment of education in those communities. Fast forward to 2023, these communities are still grappling with access to education. 
they're still grappling with access to jobs outside of that um, slave agricultural uh, complex in that area. A lot of individuals are still in desolate um, des desolate situations because of how the die was cast in between the time of civil war and reconstruction. And so when we are seeing right now uh, this Eastern North Carolina context where in the past 10 years, over 10 black lawmakers on a legislative level have been removed because of redistricting, have been pushed out because they couldn't afford to run in some of these areas. At the same time, because of these disparities, a once educated region in North Carolina now has no jobs, very limited education, and folks are moving. They're going back to going to Raleigh. They're going to Charlotte. They're going to some of these urban areas to for better opportunities. And that is decreasing the individual aspect of black population being educated, being informed, and being politically addressed in those areas. And so again, just like in um, the, the partisan judiciary, the emergence of the partisan judiciary, we've seen in Eastern North Carolina a divestment and some of the socioeconomic elements that made that part of the state thrive uh, at one time more educated, more po um, politically active than any other part of the state. Now we're seeing some of the most uh, kind of uh, drastic harms of the repeal of the Voting Rights Act, um, some of the impacts and gerrymandering in those areas. And it, it's sad to see uh, at one time 100% of the individuals in that community were voting. Now it's hard to find, you know, 15% voter turnout in some of those areas, but it didn't happen because folks were lazy. It happened because an institution in, invested in creating these harms that we see today. All right. This is uh, Marcus Banks, who is the director of the uh, North Carolina Black Alliance. And we're talking about the uh, continuing struggle for voting rights here on the Legal Eagle Review on WNCU 90.7 uh, FM. We're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to stay with us as we uh, continue uh, this, uh, this discussion. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Rental Evening Review, where we are continuing our discussion about the uh, ongoing struggle for uh, voting rights uh, here in, uh, in North Carolina. And uh, we're talking with uh, Marcus Bass, who is the uh, director of the North Carolina uh, Black Alliance and has the responsibility of uh, gathering and mobilizing uh, African Americans to engage more robustly in the uh, political process uh, in this uh, in the state, and we're talking about uh, efforts to uh, curtail, uh, to uh, decimate uh, those uh, efforts by some. So, as we return to this uh, th- th- this conversation, uh, can you kind of help our audience to understand that uh, how, in light of all of the political successes that we have had? over the years, that there is still a continuing concern uh, that's, that's, that's present uh, regarding our ability to uh, continue participating in the democratic process in this uh, state. At what point does it end? I don't have a crystal ball to tell you how it ends, um, but I think it is um, very interesting when we think about some of the battles that we were fighting uh, immediately after slavery are still some of the same battles contextually that we're fighting today. Immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation, we needed a home. We needed somewhere to stay. We needed to be able to educate ourselves. We needed to be able to provide for our families. Um, I think the reality is we have looked at a lot of different ways to engage, and none of those have been um, doing unto the white system what the white system has done unto us. But I think in a lot of cases, the harms that have been caused by this political system on behalf of a ruling white class, there is this thought process that says that if we give uh, equal access to the same opportunities and prosperities that we have seen to the black community, it will be of detriment to um, the way of life for the white community. That's a farce. In most societies we have seen equal access benefit each and every single participant, uh, regardless of race or class, a uh, system of, a, of the phrase rising tide lifts all ships. Um, for some reason, though, I think individuals are failing to realize that regardless of their how hard they try to manipulate the voting process, how much they try to beat back uh, communities of color from um, seeing the same gains as all communities, the numbers of black individuals, the numbers of communities of color are increasing. And eventually there will come a time when these tactics are only gonna fall to the wayside or only be um, powerful as we let them become. Even right now, as I mentioned earlier, some of these communities, they have a number of voters that if everyone voted based on even 70% turnout, we could see a return of black political power in North Carolina like never before. But when you have been conditioned not to go in a certain room or sit on a certain couch, after a while, you don't have to be told not to go somewhere or do something. It is already in place upon you where you can and can't go. And this conditioning is the last holdout for us to be able to regain our power. Traumatic experiences, are a very real thing in regards to our conditioning. And we've seen even in Jewish communities um, where individuals 
talk about the effects of the Holocaust on the current generation. We know that more African-Americans died in the transatlantic slave trade than died during that horrific experience of the Holocaust. These similarities of harm should be galvanizing forces in communities, not divisive forces that individuals use for partisan gain. And I think this kind of collective understanding of how our society has been pit against each other is really a, a true answer to what we need to be unpacking to get where we need to go. Uh, I don't think it's ironic that uh, for governor, we have an individual that is running uh, African-American male for the first time in a Republican ticket uh, as a uh, semblance of something for one party. And the other party has um, the son of uh, a civil rights attorney with a long history of advocating there. But that juxtaposition of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and that value statement, I think it creates a paradigm where if we don't understand our power, we may be um, you know, making decisions that could harm us in the long run. But we have the power to change it based on our ability to look beyond our condition and really make the best decision and, and vote in those record numbers that we know we can. And you, so you're talking about the conditioning that has impacted the Black community and our ability to be fully engaged in the electoral process. And as you talk about um, the history of voting in this country and the organization in which you head and, and your passion, I can't help but wonder, how did you get involved in this space and how have you uh, been able to avoid some of the conditioning that that impacts and affects so many of our, um, you know, black and brown youth. You are um, the junior amongst us here on this Zoom call. Irv and I are, are uh, in a different generation, but the work that you have done for many years in this space demonstrates that you have an understanding and, a, and an appreciation for uh, what we can accomplish. How did you get involved and how do you impart that understanding to the youth particularly that you engage with? Just very quickly about maybe why I'm engaged. First of all, I think one of the things that is unique to North Carolina and other states have pride in place but I, I feel like North Carolina has a history in which people are very proud of this state. And I think growing up in North Carolina with connections to this soil that go all the way back to slavery, I think there's an understanding of place that for me has me personally invested in this state. Um, coming out of uh, Sampson County also, I had um, political affiliations uh, beyond just voting. My mother worked for the clerk of court. My father was a highway patrol officer. Um, politics governed both of those um, offices, both of those jobs very concretely. Whoever runs the courthouse is elected. There's a clerk of court election every four years. The governor office controls um, with a large uh, ability to determine who is the top law enforcement officer in North Carolina, which then goes all the way down the pipe to how um, black officers are treated, how black workers are treated in the courts. And so I think that trifecta really, and too, I think right now, at one point in time, I was very um, perplexed about how to explain my father's experience in leadership in law enforcement, because he did not get a chance to climb up the ranks in law enforcement 
he is an example of one of those individuals that I think could be considered a, a good cop, quote unquote, even though I don't know how that terminology fits. But his experience in the Highway Patrol office was him being a whistleblower to racial acts of aggression that were being posed in community as individuals in his troop were um, you know, making derogatory statements around African-Americans, he actually stepped up. Because of that, he didn't get a chance to be promoted as some of his other counterparts did. And so I think that shaped in a real way politics and race and how those two things are carried out in my mind. Um, also being in a place where I knew the opportunities that I had based on where my parents were positioned in community were not afforded to every black student, but there were black kids smarter than me that could have gone on to do bigger and better, but because of their um, background, they were looked at differently. That landed on me very differently. I had the opportunity to attend either Carolina or A&T, and I got accepted into both. When I told folks that I got accepted into UNC Chapel Hill, they were excited. When I told them I got accepted into A&T, they said it was a party school. Why would I want to go there? Not even recognizing what they were saying. Franklin Street throws the biggest party every single year, depending on the outcome of just one basketball game. But that's a whole another statement around conditioning. Uh, ultimately, though, I made the decision to attend HBCU because I wanted to learn more about myself than just the context of uh, one rural Eastern North Carolina town and really got that at A&T. In that same time period, the uh, presidential election of Barack Obama happened. Young people turned out in massive, in a very massive way and made history. And so that really crystallized the first 18 years of my life in a real way around politics, social engagement, black empowerment. And it, I, so I blame all of that, all of that upbringing, all those folks in Sampson County that poured into me an understanding of what it meant to go to a black church, what that meant by attending a black school, what that meant by being proud of myself and never looking at um, the white society as greater than, but looking at their story and my story is just as valid in that story. And I think those are all elements that kind of brought me to this kind of political context and grounding. And I think since I have been in this position, I've worked to make sure not just that we're reaching the individuals that we need to vote right now, but we work on reaching the individuals that we need to vote tomorrow. Um, we spend a lot of our time during the summer bringing young people together uh, for the past 15 years, and really for the past 10 years through the support of the Black Alliance, we've been able to take 50 students, Black students from various parts of the state to one college campus every year to do a leadership development institute where we're talking about politics, we're talking about leadership. And that investment has returned tenfold as a lot of those students matriculate from middle school to high school with that seed invested in them. They become leaders in high school, leaders in college. And in a way that kind of restarts or jumpstarts this next generation of leadership. And then I think one area that I'm not, I'm just gonna be frank with, I don't have a real answer for 18 to 30 year olds, Attorney Dawson. Um, I understand our lived experience and I understand that not the majority of black students, black youth don't have the same experience that I had growing up or the same experience you may have had in California. But I understand that we have a responsibility to make sure that we are, number one, creating a, a process that is more smoother and accessible for them to reach up. And also us being able to have the ability to be in spaces to articulate and humanize their experience in a real way. And, and I think democracy in a, a big part is about that. It's about electing an individual that 
carries the viewpoint, has the lived experience, and understands how to help support uh, communities in a way that doesn't take somebody having to go to a city council meeting every single week or go to a state legislative meeting or get updates from CNN every day. If the process did what it was supposed to do, it would mirror this kind of um, service model that we see happening for folks that want to go back and, and trust the fact that elected individuals are going to carry out with best interest their needs. Um, and I think until we really kind of invest in both the young generation and understanding that commitment and the older generation and holding true to that and holding that accountable, I think that those two things working together is what's going to get us there. Almost like the gun situation. Um, part of it is teaching young people about gun guns and how the proper way to use and access those and even talk them out of having guns all together if that is their preference as much as it is about getting guns off the street now. So I think, you know, the political process in a sense kind of works in that same way with young people and uh, older people kind of working together in that context. And I think I just have that, I have the fortune of having that background. Well, this is a, a little departure uh, from what our planned conversation was, uh, but I understand that you just, uh, just come back from uh, South Africa. Uh, are, are you in a position to kind of contrast the level of appreciation for the right to vote and the need to vote between those uh, Africans that you uh, encountered in, uh, in, in South Africa and uh, African-Americans here uh, in, this, uh, in this country? Well, I'll answer that question first by thanking you, Attorney Joyner, and uh, you, Attorney Dawson, for the space that you provided, uh, similar to my experience, but you've done this for a number of years in making sure that we are reconnecting to ourselves. Uh, I would encourage all of our listeners, regardless of uh, how you have to get there, make a plan to go to Africa make a plan to reconnect with from whence we've come. Because in a lot of ways, I don't think we understand. Number one, we've been conditioned to only see Africa through the lens of uh, the media or what we've been told. And I don't, even just as recently as this week, we're finding that some of the oldest skeletal remains that can be found in Africa were found in Egypt. And when they did a uh, skin graph of uh, computer simulation of these individuals that lived over 35,000 years ago, they look like Attorney Joyner. They look like <laughs> Attorney Dawson. And so to think about our experience in America being based on um, just 350 years or 400 years, when we've been here for over 35,000 years, that being in that space is uh, a recharge and a refuel and a connection to yourself. I think the second part is understanding the uh, similarities in South Africa and the South African experience with apartheid to the Southern experience, more particularly the experience of Black people here in America. Um, the surrogacy of democracy to help enfranchise individuals of color there and here are the same. The interactions with government, the violent interactions are similar. The surrogacy of representation and the experience of what it means to have a Black in representation and hold um, black politic accountable. I think that is very similar. And I think to the semblance of um, or what can seemingly be the climb through economic prosperity, uh, still not getting you that same equal access as other communities as a collective power would have. 
And so I, I think what we are seeing in South Africa is in some ways America 20, 30 years ago, but in some ways it is America right now. And uh, we're not that different. Um, there are parts of South Africa that look like Roseboro, North Carolina. And there are parts of South Africa that look better than Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and I think that we can learn a lot just by looking at, looking through the mirror, looking in the looking glass at our brothers and sisters in Africa and, and seeing how that context can uh, make us better working together. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the importance of voting, particularly here in North Carolina. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, the very learned and engaging Marcus Bass. He is the director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are continuing our conversation about the uh, continuing struggle uh, for uh, voting rights and the uh, protection of that uh, here in uh, North Carolina and indeed around the uh, around the country. We have as uh, as our guest and expert uh, in this uh, matter, Marcus uh, Bass, who is the director of the North Carolina Black Alliance, and, he, and that organization uh, working. Um, on a full-time basis to uh, uh, help people to understand the necessity of voting and then protecting uh, the rights of uh, people uh, to vote. Uh, consistent with that, uh, uh, Marcus, can you kind of talk about the uh, uh, voter ID uh, requirement and, and, and why is it that that has uh, a discriminatory impact? on uh, African-Americans and uh, people of color uh, within the uh, uh, the uh, North Carolina political experience. On, on face value, uh, Attorney Joyner, uh, you would think that it is quite easy uh, to get access to an ID. In reality, that is a barrier. Um, there are many ways that you can validate a person outside of an ID. When we are born, we're giving a federal number that is a social security number. When we move into a city, 
um, you have to establish electricity. You have to establish some form of residency or a PO box or some type of address. And historically, uh, our state has made it very easy for folks to state residency. Um, you can draw an intersection uh, if you live on a street corner uh, it, without a physical address and still be able to vote in North Carolina because you're a person. Every person has a right, one person, one right. The introduction of any type of law that seeks to create another barrier is voter suppression. Um, there is a false narrative or a dog whistle of voter integrity. Um, integrity in and of itself is a dog whistle for individuals um, claiming that somebody is not acting integrous. In this case, Black voters have operated with extreme integrity, despite the level of intervention in our political uh, engagement. And so when we see the introduction of a new barrier um, being uh, veiled as a voter integrity measure, it automatically on its face should be rejected. The second piece is this. When you think about the number of individuals as Uber and technology make it um, easy for us to experience all of this state or drive from county to county or state to state or place to place without having to have a driver's license. There's a growing number of individuals that may not access a driver's license, that may not have to go to get a driver's license. So it's an impediment. And on top of that, I'm just talking about the younger population. Some of our seniors, my grandmother has never had a driver's license in her entire life. She's lived in Mount Olive, North Carolina, and has been able very easily to make a way for herself to have a job, retired after 60 years of working, and did not have a single piece of driver's license. She voted in every single election. If this law goes into effect, she is going to have to get to the DMV, going to have to, uh, in some cases, it is a free service, but in all areas, the DMV is not completely aware of how to um, provide the free ID. And she may be charged or may have to even take a driver's test. If she's coming in and doesn't know the right question, doesn't have the right advocate to help her, she may you know, be turned away or turned around or confused and just go home altogether. And she's a, a smart individual um, you know, with no college education. She's been able to you know, do very well for herself. These uh, individual stories extrapolated by 10, 20, 30 per county extrapolated by 100 counties, could see at least thousands of voters denied the right to vote just because they don't have access to go obtain a driver's license or a form of voter ID. In other states where this has been enacted, we have seen an extreme drop in voter participation and more money has to be invested in getting folks to an ID that's unnecessary, making sure that their information is valid or up to date, and the challenges that are being placed in the path of voters that already have federal identification that they can use to verify their residency, which is the main reason to have an idea to state that you are a resident in the city in which you're voting. I think it's ridiculous to add another impediment, uh, especially something around a photo voter ID. It um, call, calls back or harkens back to having to have a poll tax, you know, having to go pay an additional fine or take an additional test to vote. And it's an unnecessary bill that has already been deemed illegal, unconstitutional in North Carolina, but because of this partisan shift, this intentional shift in our judiciary, now the General Assembly is able to control the courts. 
and make the courts bring back these situations that we know hold no merit in our democracy. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that you mentioned before was that our political representation does not represent our population. And as you talk about voter suppression, that's, you know, an, a very clear way in which we see to um, create that result, right? So if you can prevent people from voting, but of course, we know that there are other pernicious means by which to ensure that the political representation does not represent the population. And so not only do you try to suppress the vote, but you also try to manipulate how individuals are selected. And that takes us to political gerrymandering. So we know that racial gerrymandering, like you know, designing districts in such a way that you um, dilute the impact of the black and brown vote, that that's unconstitutional. But of course, we've got the issue of political gerrymandering. We have the United States Supreme Court has said that um, there is not a judicial standard by which that can be um, reviewed such that it doesn't violate the US Constitution. The Supreme Court said, however, states may be able to take a look at political gerrymandering and see if it violates state law or the state constitution. We had the North Carolina Supreme Court reach that conclusion, yet now that issue is being readdressed by the newly constituted North Carolina Supreme Court. Can you talk about the role in which partisan gerrymandering is uh, being used in order to ensure that those who are in power remain in power and what you see on the horizon in terms of what we need to do to make sure that that doesn't continue to undercut our ability to be fully engaged in the political process. Very loaded question. Um, and it makes me think about the fact that people sit in rooms and they orchestrate these plans to undermine, intentionally undermine our community. And whenever you look at it as a game, you lose the human aspect of this. And a lot of people look at politics as a game, right? There's two parties, two players. Um, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are equally as guilty for undermining the political process for their own gain. And regardless if you're blue or red, if you are black, you don't have a token on the board. I think that for a lot of us, we have to realize that these spaces like the Legal Eagle Review, the programs like NCCU School of Law have been put in place intentionally to make sure that there is a real clearinghouse, a real think tank, a real way to look at these challenges, not as just superficial, but as intentional and systemic. And being able to unpack these harms is just as important as being able to elect a person into office. If, if anything, they go hand in hand. And so when we talk about partisan gerrymandering, which is literally people sitting in rooms trying to manipulate, trying to figure out how to manipulate maps to ensure their power, there is a lot that is wrong with that from a partisan standpoint and from a racial standpoint. Because regardless of how you look at it, they are dividing and diluting the power of the Black vote. In the case of the Democrats, 
It is making sure that there's just a marginal representation to keep the status quo in check to make black voters feel as if they have an equal shake. And on the Republican side, uh, it is quite similar, but in a lot of ways, because in some cases, the Democrats are, are quote unquote, the big tent party. They're able to use that excuse to whitewash districts uh, because they put the responsibility of uh, advocacy for the black community on the Democrats. And so that leaves us having to move from district to district without even having to move streets. Uh, it is very true that some communities have switched districts four different times from congressional representation all the way down to school board representation. They are able to pinpoint what districts or what zip codes are electing individuals at every level of the ballot. I think one of the ways that we have to fight gerrymandering is number one, understanding the cause. It is all about mapping manipulation. You may not know Eldridge Jerry, the individual that first was coined with the term gerrymandering to know that we're in a battle city by city, street by street around representation. And who represents us says a lot about how much power we have and who we don't have. I think those basic key elements need to continue to be elevated in community because for so long, we've just been told to vote for the past 50 or 60 years, right? All we have told is just to use, it's like being in a room and being told where to sit uh, when there's a bunch of other chairs. And really it's not even about where to sit, it's about how to use the room. What is this room used for? Democracy is the room and we're being told where to sit. And I think in the case of gerrymandering, we need to be able to know how to use the room. What is the, how is the room already being used? And I think in the case of this map manipulation, there are different areas that we can engage in. Uh, I think the congressional maps that we got this year are the fairest maps that we have ever seen congressionally. We went from having only three Democrats uh, represented in Congress to seven. And that polarity means that in a lot of ways, the congressional representation matches the constituency of North Carolina more evenly than our legislative maps and our judicial maps. And so I think for those of us that are in the uh, litigation space, we have to continue to understand the difference between partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering. And I think we have to continue to elevate what that looks like, not just at the congressional level, but at every, we have to make these challenges on the school board level. We have to make these challenges at the county commission and city council level. And I think we also have to find folks that live in these districts that have been shifted and have them stand up as plaintiffs for additional cases. Uh, figure out how we can get folks to run in the districts that have been redrawn and have them continue to run because even though they're trying to manipulate the maps, the populations are shifting every 10 years in between that time. And so I think this is a part of the process where we have to realize uh, the game is being played around us, but we can still grab the controller with a little bit of um, struggle on a local level to identify the same harms that they've been identified on the state and congressional level in regards to map manipulation. Um, but that is one of the key determinants. When folks talk about ain't nothing gonna change regardless of who gets elected, they're really talking about the fact that they're in a gerrymandered district. And, and when we look at those things as novelties or look at those things as just um, reasons why people are apathetic, instead of unpacking, examining and researching what they're saying, we realize that those are some of the best individuals that can speak the language of gerrymandering without even knowing what gerrymandering means. And we got to be able to reach those people, uh, those folks and elevate those stories. And as, as someone who is out in the community working with these uh, 
various groups, organizations, and individuals. Uh, what is it that the uh, Black Alliance uh, plan to, to do uh, as we have a very contentious election period coming up, uh, leading up to uh, 2024, uh, when there are many races and many positions that will be uh, on the ballot. So uh, what is it that the uh, Black Alliance will do to uh, get people ready uh, and engage them now in some uh, pre-election day activity designed to assert their power within the political process? Glad you asked that question. Uh, first and foremost, April 27th and 28th, we annually hold the largest convening of Black elected officials in this state, really in the South. Um, anywhere between 300 to 500 Black elected officials, Black community leaders will convene in Raleigh on April 27th and 28th at the Marriott Crabtree for the North Carolina Black Summit. Uh, for those of you that are interested in more information about the Black Summit, you can simply go to ncblacksummit.org and get information about how you can get engaged. Uh, having that think tank of Black leadership in one space gives us a chance to really uh, re-examine our agenda, re-examine our issues, talk about how we can be more effective as Black community and Black leaders. Do you know, oftentimes, Black leadership and community only come together in public-facing moments. So unless you're at a city council meeting or a county commissioner meeting or some type of elected official space, there's no real way to have that dialogue. And we think we want to replicate um, the Black Summit experience across the state. And so we'll be having convenings. We held one in the Southeast uh, about two weeks ago with about 60 leaders from across uh, North Carolina. And then I think after we have convened the grass roots, we need to be informed by uh, the grass tops. We need to, or, or vice versa, right? We need to make sure that we're connecting the roots the leaders in community to the individuals that are in advocacy spaces. And then we need to do everything we can to make sure that we're telling a North Carolina story that's authentic to the black experience. A lot of people don't know what happens day to day in North Carolina and the battles that we play in our state and how it can be a, a really a flashlight for the rest of the South. And so we'll be doing that. And then we'll be getting at a precinct level and street level identifying leaders that can walk with us for the next two years until we win in 2024 with a historic black turnout that I know we can have. So that's a little bit of what the Black Alliance is gonna be doing. And I appreciate you all allowing uh, me the time to share and hopefully he continue to join with us in that. Absolutely. And thank you so much for taking time to be on the Legal Eagle Review with us. Marcus Bass, the director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. It's always an education hearing you talk. It's always motivational. Your enthusiasm and expertise is always appreciated. And of course, we'll have you back on the show in the future. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you have enjoyed the show and that you will share it with your friends and family and get involved in the Black North Carolina Black Alliance and the upcoming summit. If you miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.